So for the past few weeks, we have been thinking about this Christmas story. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. I know some of y'all are real attentive, and you re- remember us reading that out loud a couple weeks ago, and you thought maybe I forgot or something. But no, I didn't forget. just wanted to remind you where we, we've been studying and, and what we're getting at. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been thinking about what this phrase, God with us, means. And so the first week we were together in this series, I told you that I think that the God with us is a claim about Jesus' nature, that Jesus is God in the flesh who alone is worthy of our worship. Last week we also saw that God with us means that Jesus is with us in our humanity for our redemption. And that's what Pastor Jerry preached from Hebrews chapter 2, that because you and I have flesh and blood, it was fitting for Jesus to take flesh and blood as well so that he could bring us to God and remove from us the fear of death. But today I want to talk about something that's really near and dear to my heart. And it's the fact that this God with us is a claim that speaks to the relationship that's available between you and God. It's about covenant, the connection that Christ wants to establish between his people and God. And as I was trying to prepare and think about ways to get your attention in my introduction, I just thought about a simple question. How long can you live without God? Think about it. I could have sang that last song about three more times. Man, I, my, I have no hope apart from Jesus Christ. How long can you live without God? Part of me wants to say not very long at all. I mean, you can live without food for a few months. Depends how big you are when you start. But you can live without food for a good while. You live without water for a few days. Live without oxygen for a few minutes. And how long can you live without God? And in a sense, it's a trick question. Because you and I know you can, I can't live my life without God very long at all. And yet, I also have some periods in my life, and I've seen it in other people's lives, that you can go quite a long time living without God. And it never turns out pretty. That you and I were made for a relationship with our Creator. But because of our sin, we are alienated from Him. And as a result, we often live lives that I I think are incredibly miserable. They're hopeless. They're purposeless. It's just like you're going through the motions, but you're not getting anywhere. And this morning, I want to show you how this passage teaches us that a different kind of life is possible. That you can have a relationship with God and therefore a purposeful life through Jesus, God with us. And so I want to just zoom in as closely as we can on what this phrase means in Matthew 1.23. This was to fulfill what the prophets had spoken. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And I just want you to consider for a second what that phrase implies. Now, according to Matthew, the birth of Jesus, as announced by the angel to Joseph on that fateful evening when he was considering what he was going to do with his pregnant fiance, was a fulfillment of what God had foretold through Isaiah. But if the birth of Jesus somehow means that God is with us, doesn't it also mean that before his birth, there was a sense that God was not with us? But something changed. Jesus is born, God with us. But before he's born, God is not with us. 
And Mary and Joseph would have understood this very well. They belonged to an ancient people called the Israelites. And they had a story about where they came from and about the God who loved them and who had created them and who had redeemed them. The story begins very, very early, at the beginning of creation, when God prepared a perfect place for people called the Garden of Eden. And on the sixth day of creation, as the crowning act of his creative week, he made the first man and woman. The Bible calls these people Adam and Eve. And it tells us that in their created condition, they lived openly before God, receiving from him everything they needed, and that God would walk with them in the cool of the day. They had this unbroken relationship with God, as personal as you can get, God walking with them in the cool of the day. But of course, Adam and Eve were not able to maintain that relationship for long. I don't know how long they lasted in the garden enjoying that fellowship with God, but at some point they were tempted and they disobeyed God's command. And they lost that perfect fellowship, the relationship. God sent them out of the garden and away from his presence. And away from their, his presence, the world went from bad to worse. The wickedness of mankind increased until it came to such a point that God decided to wipe out mankind entirely and start from scratch. And as the world repopulated and mankind spread over the face of the earth into every corner and nation, God remembered his people and came to a man named Abram who lived in ancient Mesopotamia. And God spoke to him and said, Abram, leave your father's house and go to the place where I'm going to show you and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you a blessing. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars of the heaven and through you all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And so Abram went. The Bible says that Abram walked with God. That he followed his commands and lived according to all that he asked. And because of that, God blessed him. And he gave him a son named Isaac. And Isaac worshipped God. And Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And God blessed them. He was with them, showing them favor. He was with them when they made it all the way to Egypt during a time of great famine. And God caused their number to explode as if he was fulfilling the promise he had made to Abraham to make his descendants as numerous as the stars in heaven. But maybe you know the story that it came to a point where the Pharaoh saw this populous people and enslaved them and forced them to build monuments to his own name. And under this oppression, they cried out to God to remember the promises he'd made to Abram and to, and to come to them again. And so God did. The Bible says that he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he came to a man named Moses in a burning bush. He spoke to him and he said, Moses, go to Egypt and tell the Pharaoh to let my people go. And so Moses went and he told the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh didn't believe him. He said, who's God? Where is he? You know, you and what army? And so God showed up for his people in 10 miraculous plagues, proving his power and might over Egypt and her gods. And eventually, after the 10th plague, when he killed the firstborn sons of Egypt and only spared the Israelites because the blood of the Passover lamb was on their door, God went with his people out of Egypt. He escorted them in a cloud. And when they came to the Red Sea, he parted it and they walked through as on dry land. And then he led them by the pil pillar of cloud during the day and a fire by night until they came to a mountain called Sinai. And on that mountain, God met with his people. He came down from heaven in a thundercloud like the one that woke you up at 3 o'clock this morning. 
and lightning flashed and trumpets blast, and the people knew that they were there with God. God was there. Of course, Moses on the mountain saw God, saw his back as he hit him in the cleft of the rock. The people were convinced, hey, God is up there. We can see him. When Moses came down with stone tablets, God instructed him to build a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant, and he put the stone tablets in it. And that ark represented God's presence with his people. It actually had a little place on top of it that was surrounded by the seraphim called the mercy seat, which was God's throne room on earth. And everywhere the Ark of the Covenant went, the people followed as if God was leading his people by his very presence. Of course, the people of Israel followed in Adam and Eve's footsteps and grumbled against the Lord and rebelled against him. And so he led them through the wilderness for 40 years. But he was always with them. The pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night, the manna from heaven every day, the water from the rock, the quail that miraculously appeared. God proved himself. He's with them. They come to the Jordan River on the edge of the promised land after 40 years of wandering, and Moses passes away, and God says, hey, take your right-hand man Joshua and set him up to lead my people. Joshua led the people across the river and into the promised land, and what happened? That God went before his people, fighting their battles. And everywhere they went and when they obeyed the Lord, they knew he was with them as a mighty warrior. And they set up shop in Israel and lived peacefully for a hundred years until the people did what was right in their own eyes and they started to face enemies arising on every end. But God was with his people, raising up judges who would win victory in different places and allowing his people a certain kind of peace until finally... A man named David comes along and establishes a lasting peace over God's people. He has a son named Solomon who follows through on his father's dreams to build the Lord a house, a place for his name to dwell, a dwelling place for God on earth called the temple. God allowed Solomon to build this house, and when Solomon stood before the people and prayed his prayer of dedication, slaughtering thousands of bulls and goats, the Bible says a cloud descended from heaven the very presence of God. It took up residence in the temple, and it was so thick, God there with his people, that the priests couldn't even get in to do their work. When the Israelites came to the temple, they came confidently, knowing that God was there, and that if they came the way he told them, with the sacrifice that he required, they could meet with him and receive from him forgiveness for their sins, and they could experience fellowship with him. They even ate together. They ate part of the meal, and the priest ate part of the meal, just as if they were there with God eating. As time goes on, again, the Israelites follow in their forefathers' footsteps, and they rebel against God. And so God removes his presence from the temple. The glory departs. He removes his protection from around the nation. And powerful kingdoms, first the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, conquered God's people and ransacked their temple, and God sent his people away from his presence into exile in Babylon. For 70 years, they wonder, what's going to happen? Is God going to finally come through? And the prophets were there to say, yeah, this is temporary. This is judgment for your sins. Someday God will return to his people and take up residence among you again. So the prophets held out hope, constantly reminding the people, you got yourselves into this mess, but God is faithful He will forgive. But then, eventually, even the prophets go silent. 
for 400 years, the people of Israel are left in the dark. Their society crumbles. They always live under the cruel thumb of some oppressor. And by the time Joseph and Mary end up in Bethlehem ready to have a baby, it's only because Caesar wants to make sure he knows how many people are living in his kingdom so he can make sure he taxes at the right rate. I mean, it's pretty hopeless for the people of God. And I know that story of the Bible is heavy in a sense, but even though maybe I recounted it that way to you, it still seems a little far off. The hopelessness of the people of God 2,000 years ago seems so distant, right? And yet I wonder, do you see people living hopeless lives today? I was thinking about it, the hopelessness. I think about famous atheists who show up on TV. I sometimes see stuff by a notable podcaster and author named Sam Harris. And so I typed in, Sam Harris, Existence of God. And in 2005, Sam Harris wrote a document called The Atheist Manifesto, and basically outlining his unbelief and all the reasons for it. One of the things he points to, 2005, September, Hurricane Katrina demolished New Orleans. And Sam Harris says, just take Hurricane Katrina for an example. If there's a God who's all-powerful and loving, what do you do with Hurricane Katrina? What do you do with the Christians who were praying when their homes were leveled and flooded? And he says, you know, it turns out that all that suffering means that belief in God is no more than a fairy tale. Make believe with an imaginary friend. That's pretty hopeless. That's pretty, that's pretty bleak. Then I think about the nihilism of the existential philosophers that I thought were cool in college. Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus. So that life is meaningless. The only meaning in life is what you make of it. And 60 years on, we see their philosophy taking root in our society and identity politics and the need to become whatever you think you are. But if I'm honest, the hopelessness I've often felt is nothing as intellectual as all that. Hopelessness I've known in my life is much more lowbrow. Just the routine and mundane existence in the rat race. The waking up and going to work, coming home, fixing dinner, sitting down on the TV, going to sleep, waking up tomorrow and doing it all again. You do that day after day after day after day after day. <coughs> surviving. Spinning the wheel. It's hopeless. No, no, no bigger purpose or meaning. Nothing else to cheer your heart. Nothing to stir up within you. Some vision of something better. That's the hopelessness I, I've seen in my own life and I've seen in the people around me. It's this kind of thing that C.S. Lewis talked about in his sermon, Way to Glory. He said that we're half-hearted creatures satisfying ourselves with drinks and sex and ambition. And all the while, infinite joy is being offered to us. We're like the kid who's satisfied making mud pies in a slum 
because he can't comprehend what's on offer when he hears about a week spent at the beach. Life without God is hopeless. All we can produce is what we have within ourselves, and it's bleak. But then you come to this story. Matthew 1, 23. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And all that life without God is over. It's done. Life without God, but now God is with us. And we see that while it's possible to live life without God, nobody in their right mind would consciously choose it. They'd much rather have the life that's possible through Jesus. That's what Matthew's trying to tell us, that if Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, then everything is about to change. The birth of Jesus is going to fundamentally alter the way the people of Israel relate to their God. No longer is it hope and longing and desperation. It's fulfillment and experience of what God said was always coming. This change ushers in an all-new relationship between God and man. The Bible calls this relationship the new covenant. The new covenant. Now, covenant, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you're still trying to figure out the whole God thing, covenant is the Bible's word for the relationship that exists between God and people. In fact, you could tell the story of the Bible through the series of covenants follow one from the next with Adam and Abraham and Israel at Sinai and the new covenant through Christ. And all these covenants have a few common features. In every covenant, there are two parties, a Christmas party and a New Year's party. No, I know that's what you're thinking. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about there are two individuals involved in the relationship. There's the greater and the lesser. Now, the Terms of the relationship are determined by the greater in the relationship. So God says, hey, here's what I'll give you. These are the blessings that are going to accrue to you if you live up to the conditions. And if you don't live up to the conditions, these are the curses that you'll experience. And so think about it. God makes this relationship with Adam. Sometimes people call this the covenant of creation or the covenant of works. God enters into this relationship with Adam, and he says, Hey, listen, Adam, eat from any tree in the garden that you want. That's a blessing. But, here's the condition, do not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. For here is the curse. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. So what does Adam do? Does he go on living in the blessings of the covenant with God? No, he violates the covenant and experiences the curses. You're expelled from the presence of God to suffer death. Same thing with Abraham. Abraham comes to God. He says, here's the blessings that are on offer. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply your descendants. I'm going to make you a great name, and I'm going to bless the world through you. The conditions are implied. Abraham could have said, no, I'm not interested. I'm going to stay here at my dad's house. Or, he could have had Isaac and taken him up on the mountain where God said to sacrifice. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. But every time God put a test to Abraham, he followed through, experienced the blessings. Israel at Sinai, here's the blessing. 
experience prosperity in the land. But the conditions are to obey every word that comes out of the mouth of God. The curse outlined in Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30 is to experience oppression from their neighbors, rot in their society, and ultimately exile away from the land. And every time God makes these agreements, these conditions are established. What are you going to do? But God promised a future covenant which would sort of flip the script. Rather than requiring perfect obedience from the people, it seems as if God himself was going to take on both the responsibilities required by the lesser and provide the blessings established by the greater. He says in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I'll write it on their heart. And I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. And they won't teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, but they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I'll, declare, I'll forgive their iniquity and their sins I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above could ever be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they've done, declares the Lord. Behold, days are coming when the city will be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The measuring line will go out farther straight ahead to the hill Gareb. Then it will turn to Goa. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kedron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It will not be plucked up or thrown over anymore forever. In this new covenant, God is saying, there are no conditions under which curses will come upon my people. It'll never happen. It's going to be blessing upon blessing for all eternity. And this is the covenant Jesus was born to fulfill, to inaugurate and establish for people like you and me. That's why Paul says in Galatians 4, 6, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Get this. Jesus, the baby, born in Bethlehem, took on human flesh so that he could come into the covenant God had made with his people and succeed where they had failed. So that he could say, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. For not one word of the law will pass away, not one jot or tittle until all has been accomplished. He came to live a 
perfect life, the life that you and I were covenantally obligated to fulfill. And then he came to suffer the penalty that our disobedience deserved. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What Jesus did for us is take on every obligation that God had placed on us and he fulfilled it on our behalf. And then after he had done it, he stood up in our place to suffer the penalty we deserved. And because of that, the Bible tells us those terms and conditions of that old covenant are set aside. They're fulfilled. They're done away with. The contract has been completed. The debt has been paid. Everything's been paid off and finalized. The note has been thrown away. That's what Matthew says in Matthew 1.17, that you should call his name Jesus. Fear he'll save his people from their sins. That's why Pastor Jerry preached to us last week from Hebrews chapter 2 that he took on flesh to share in the flesh and blood that we have. And it's why the author of Hebrews can say in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, that every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law upon their hearts and on their mind, I'll write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now, where there's forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the household of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Listen, Jesus did for you what you could never have done for yourself. He paid the penalty your sins deserve. He obeyed God on your behalf. And now in him, a new relationship with God is possible. Not on the basis of your perfect obedience to the covenant stipulations, but on the basis of Christ's perfect righteousness and his sacrificial death, which opened up a way not to the temple on earth, but into the heavenly holy place, into the very presence of God, where the Bible says, we just read it, you have boldness to go to God. That's the new relationship with God that's possible with Jesus. Because that's available, you don't have to go on living the meaningless, hopeless, purposeless life that you know too well. There's a new kind of life possible, a purposeful life. This morning, I think I've spent a long time talking about objective realities, Things that are facts because they are the way God made them so. But there's a subjective side to everything we've been talking about. There is the experience of Jesus as God with us. I mean, think about what it actually meant for Mary and Joseph and the first Jews who experienced it. I mean, the the Gospel of Luke is full of these stories of men and women who'd been faithfully longing to see 
Christ, a man named Simeon, a woman named Anna, who had made covenants with God. God, just let me live to see the Messiah. And they finally get to see him. And you read Luke 1 and 2, and you see the joy that bubbles up from their heart. That they know when they hold that baby in their hands, that this is what we've waited for. You see joy and peace and the assurance that God is faithful, that he hasn't forgotten. You think about the first followers of Jesus who'd, been grown, who'd grown up being taught to meet with God at the temple and to listen for God as intently as possible through the stodgy interpretation of scribes and Pharisees, but who now didn't have to look for God in the temple. They saw him in the flesh. John says, the word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we've seen his glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. He didn't have to wish, oh man, wonder what it'd be like to get into the holy of holies beyond the veil and to look on God for myself. God took on flesh and came to him. They didn't have to strain in the synagogue. They were around a campfire. Listen to God speak with authority to see right into their hearts and tell them everything about themselves. They knew more deeply than they ever thought possible what kind of life was really possible with God. I mean, he, he would say things like in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, and here he was, through me. The, this isn't, I know it's hard for us, but can you imagine what that was like when Jesus' disciples heard that and they're sitting in this upper room together around a dinner table? He's just washed their feet, and he says, nobody comes to the Father except through me. The one they could reach out and touch, the one they had lived with for three years, the one who right now in this moment by his Spirit is assuring you in your heart that it's true for you too. That the relationship with God that he established wasn't just for people who knew him back then, but it's available today. Jesus even said this. He bookends the Gospel of Matthew with a promise of his presence. Matthew 1.23, this was to fulfill what the prophet spoken, God with us. And Jesus says the very last words of the Gospel, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I mean, Jesus is personally available and present to anybody who by faith will take hold of him. And the, and the possibility of the new relationship with God that we've been talking about is yours. I mean, the, the new reality ushered in by Jesus led his first followers to leave behind a life in Judaism and give themselves completely to him. And my encouragement to you today would be to follow their lead. See, that there is no life apart from the one who says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I don't know what you want to call it, Maybe existence is the best word. Maybe survival is the best way to describe it. But it's not life. Jesus said the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. That's what he wants for you. That's why the Son of God left heaven, took on flesh, lived the sinless life, died the sacrificial death, so you could have life. The life we're talking about is a life defined by access to God, where you walk boldly into his throne room to receive from him the mercy and grace you need in a time of need. It means adoption into his family, 
so that you can call on him as father and know that your father knows what you need before you're asked. And if evil men wouldn't dare give their son a stone if he asked for a piece of fish, how would your father not give you good things? It means to know life in Jesus' kingdom. The, the stuff we read about from Isaiah 11 that we look forward to someday, but we even get to experience the first fruits even now. I'm talking about the life of his spirit taking up residence within you to produce within you the fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. We're talking about the meaning. We're going to talk about this next week. I want to preach it. I, y'all get ready. We are going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, not just God with us, but us with God. And think about the promise that is ours in Jesus, that someday whether he returns or we die, we will live with him forever. That's the life that Jesus makes possible for you today. So I don't really know how long you can live without God. I imagine it's conceivable to live, quote unquote, quite a long time without God. I think the more important question is, how long will you live without God? Because a relationship with God and therefore a purposeful life is possible through Jesus, God with us. He came to establish a new covenant by which you could know the God who created you for a perfect relationship with him is right there. As I think about it, there are probably three types of people here this morning. People who are living without God and before this morning had no idea. You just thought this is the way all people live. You thought the misery and hopelessness and purposelessness, that was just the way it is for everybody. You didn't know there was any other way. And this morning, I just want to tell you that another way is possible. I'd love to help you find life in Jesus. I'd love to help you repent of your sins, walk you through that process. I'd love to help you commit to following him, to say, I want whatever Jesus wants for my life. There's another group of people, though, people who haven't been living with God and know it. They're miserable, and they know why they're miserable. I think that's where I've been when I've lived without God. It was, I, I knew I was without him, but there were some things in my life that I was not ready to give up. But aren't you ready to give it up to know the life that Jesus offers you? And I sense in my own soul that God wants to do something new in me. And it is incredibly terrifying. It's gut-wrenching to see the Lord lay out these steps before you that you know he wants you to take. But you know it's going to lead you places you've never been before and it's terrifying. Can I encourage you today to do it? To make the decision you know you need to make? To make the change you know has been long overdue? To say that my number one goal in life is to pursue a deeper relationship with God than the one I have today. And I'm willing to give up and do whatever God asks of me to get there. Don't let another Sunday go by without responding to that. And then there's that third group. 
who knows what it means to live life with God. Man, I'm thankful for you. Will you show the rest of us the way into the depths of undivided devotion to the Lord? Will you look around you this Christmas season to family members and friends? Tell them to keep up the fight, pat them on the back, grab them by the arm, and lead them where they ought to be. Some of y'all have been walking with the Lord longer than the rest of us have been alive. And we need your faithful example. So run your race. Will you pray with me this morning?